and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito. We're here for episode 284 and my conversation with University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, percussion professor, Marco Sharippa. How's everybody doing? Are you all hanging in there? This is a fascinating time of the year, always, because I see my fellow college teachers both starting and ending their spring breaks at this time in March. And it's always hilarious to think about since Mizzou's spring break is usually the latest of any. It's always the last week of March going into April to match up with the spring break schedule for the public schools in town. In any case, I look forward to our break, which is still pretends to check watch two and a half weeks away. <sighs> All right, settling in. Let's get to today's guest, Marco Sharippa. Marco and I are meeting for the first time on this podcast, but I've been aware of him for a while. I first got introduced to his name through his compositions, many of which have been published through C. Allen Publications, where I worked many years ago and have my own pieces published. I also heard more about him through my conversation with previous podcast guest Colin Hill, linked to the episode in the show notes who taught alongside Marco at Tennessee Tech prior to Marco's appointment at UTRGV. Marco has been active in the percussion community for quite a while now and has been teaching throughout that time. He's been active as composer, performer, teacher, and is now leading the program at the University of Texas at Rio Grande Valley, which, as an institution, is a fascinating story in and of itself. You'll hear about his job, his upbringing in New York, his stand-up comedy father, his love of video games, his schooling in New York and Indiana, the challenges of being an adjunct, and some great stories in the closing segment. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 24th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Marco, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. Uh, sure. So I'm currently I'm in the second year of a tenure track position. Um, it's assistant professor of percussion at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. And so without getting too detailed about everything in the school right now, basically, um, it's your kind of run of the mill percussion only job. So I have a full studio of students, um, private percussion students, percussion ensemble. And then I do percussion methods, uh, pretty standard. Um, and fortunately, um, that's it. That's, uh, that's my job. I have kind of a research load. Um, so obviously, I'm held to a pretty high standard as far as research is concerned um, in exchange for the, this is the smallest teaching load I've ever had <laughs> as a college faculty member in the, you know, the highest ranking position I've ever held. So that's kind of funny how that works. I, and I'm assuming that they're relating research to performing, right? Yeah, yeah, performing. And also they're they're really big here. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this university at all, um, but it used to be uh, UT Pan American and UT Brownsville. Mm -hmm. And now together they are UT RGV yeah. as well as some other um, universities. Um, and so like a lot of the kind of small up and coming schools were growing quickly and, um, you know, there's a focus on like, we want to be like a research one institution and we have great research funding and all kinds of 
um, you know, financial opportunities for the students because of the sort of primary demographic that we serve and where we're located. Um, and so because of that, yeah, our research funding is, um, is pretty solid. And so they um, really push us to publish as well. Um, so in my case, that's, you know, percussive notes, articles and educational journals, um, not so much my composing, um, which has definitely slowed down a bit. Not that I don't do it at all anymore, um, but you know, that's not what my primary focus needs to be since it's focused on percussion, you know, uh, as a percussionist and not as necessarily a composer or a um, what have you. So. so not even works for percussion? It's not like I'm discouraged from it, sure. you know, but it's yeah. more so like, you know, when we look at your materials for promotion, they're not looking to see if I published five marimba solos. They're looking to see if I published an article about percussion pedagogy in a journal or something like that. It Got doesn't it. hurt to have the other stuff. Right. Um, and I'm playing my own compositions and things like that. So obviously that all counts. Um but just, you know, it's just kind of a little bit nitpicky specific over what's cool and what isn't based on the description of my job. It yep. was annoying at first, but I completely understand, you know. Right. You know, even like in that first year, you could get the, if you, if you, if you do like annual faculty evaluations and they could be like, like, it's great that you're writing, but if we, we do want you to, to get tenure. So yeah, this, this is more what you need to pay attention to. Yeah. And of course that hasn't been an issue because I came in with the game plan of what I knew I needed to do to be successful and right. um, kind of doing that. So, you know, composing, it's not that I'm not composing anymore, but it's just like, I'm not doing it as much. Basically I'm only writing now when like, I guess when I have to, if I have a commission or something like that, but yeah. like, I'm not really sitting down and writing just for fun yeah. anymore right now. Um, just because, you know, I have to budget my time. Right. Was that where Joe Moore used to teach? Yeah, so I, I technically have um, his his former position. Got it. Because I think, if I remember correctly, I think it switched like either right when he got there or like I can't remember because I'm familiar with those universities because I, I well because I knew he was there and then mm -hmm. I went to school with a friend who I think used to teach at UT Brownsville. I don't know if he's sure. um, yeah Dan Hunter Holly. Oh yeah, he he works here. Um, okay, yeah, so, I think he's associate dean of our 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 music school right now, or of our fine arts department. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah he, he and I went to grad school together. Oh school. yeah, he's awesome. So, yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, uh, I believe uh, Dr. Moore was here um, uh, before the schools even merged. Yeah, and then yeah, and then when when he moved on, um, yeah, then of course uh, you know I was hired. So. Um, grateful for the opportunity, of course. And um, a lot of the students here speak extremely highly of him, but I've yeah, never had yeah. the pleasure of meeting him in person. So oh, hopefully one day. He's awesome. Yeah, I think you would you would you would enjoy him. Tell me a little bit about the facilities that you're working in. Yeah, of course, this is audio only, but uh, you can right. see my office and it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gigantic. Yeah. And uh, I already had all this great equipment. The unique kind of part about our school is it is a technically now a distributed campus because it used to literally be more than one school. Right. Um, so we have two full music facilities in two different cities with essentially two full music faculties, basically a tenure track professor for each area slash instrument on each campus. Mm -hmm. um, so we have two tenure track percussion, two tenure track 
clarinet with some exceptions. Sure. Um, in general, um, the facilities in Edinburgh, which is um, the sort of northern campus, yeah, uh, yeah. they have huge facilities, beautiful, amazing concert hall, and it's, it's a much bigger campus. Down here, it's a little smaller, but all of our facilities are like sleek and brand new. Um, so everything's like really clean and yeah. organized and in great condition. Our equipment down here is really nice. Yeah, the only tough part is that the concert hall on this campus is like shared with another institution. Mm -hmm. So it's not like right next to the music building like it is on the other campus. You know, you have to like, it's a little bit of a journey to like get ready for a concert there. Yeah. Um, but we do utilize everything that we have. So um, like whenever there's a major ensemble, like orchestra or band, the best students from both campuses are in the ensemble. Um, Cause it's treated like it's one, it's like, you know, Indiana or North Texas where there's like, it's like six music buildings or whatever, but it's still one music school it just has like six buildings. Our right. buildings just happen to be kind of far apart. All of the big like major ensemble concerts and like I do my faculty recitals this way, you perform it once on each campus. Oh, okay. Um, so the university provides transportation all day, every day to students. They have like the, the coach bus with Wi-Fi that just goes from student union to student union. Um, and you can just ride it back and forth for free all day. And if you don't want to drive yourself. And so they provide, what's, it, what's the, what's the uh, mileage distance or time distance? Between? It is about 70 miles. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, with traffic and everything. Um, if I were to drive up there right now, it would take me just over an hour. Mm -hmm. So it's not always the, um, the most convenient, but, uh, we do have a lot there, you know, there are a lot of advantages, uh, to the situation as well, as far as the resources available to us. And I have so many more amazing colleagues than I would otherwise, because we have to fill all the spots. And so we have a lot of people who work here and a lot of people who are awesome. And I mean, you work in academia as well. And, you know, it's harder and harder to get a job, but that means that the people getting hired are like more and more amazing. <laughs> and so, right. you know, like even being on a search committee is like, wow, all these people are applying to work here. Oh my goodness. And it's a hard decision because they're all so good. <laughs> yeah. So where I'm curious because of these two campuses and their, and their locations, does everyone so, do a lot of faculty live like right smack in the middle or something like that? Or are they like, how, how does, I'm curious how the living situation works to try to make those distances. <laughs> yeah. Without getting too specific, sure. uh, they kind of, you know, when you're hired and, you know, you have like your salary offers and stuff like that, they do kind of take into consideration what your life is going to be like. You know, they, they are fully aware of what the situation is. Um, and so, you know, that's something that, you know, was brought up in the interview, you know what I mean? Uh, but basically the way that it's like supposed to work essentially is that what, you know, if I'm the percussion professor in Brownsville, I, I theoretically should just teach in Brownsville and the clarinet professor in Brownsville theoretically just teaches in Brownsville. And then, you know, if, your group get, or like, you know, like the clarinet choirs or whatever, give a joint concert as one clarinet choir. And maybe like once every couple of weeks, they all get together to rehearse a big piece, which is again, theoretically what we do for percussion ensemble as well. But the reality is, is that there's going to be a discrepancy in enrollment numbers. When a student comes to the school, they just choose which campus they want to be at. You know, again, without getting too deep into it, uh, Edinburgh, which is the Northern campus, kind of has a wider range of people who live close to it. 
in general, in my experience, you know, most of the enrollment on that campus has is a little bit higher. So what a lot of the faculty in Browns will do, myself very much included, is you do some teaching on the other campus as well. I go up there twice a week, um, and I'd say about a third of my private students are on the other campus. And then I also teach um, with the classes that are required for the degree, like um, like percussion methods, which I teach, that rotates campuses each semester. So like in the fall, it's in Brownsville. In the spring, it's in Edinburgh. And that doesn't mean you can't take it, but you have to get to the other campus to take the class, you know, which some people do. Because if you're traveling for band or something, then, you know, it might work in your schedule. Um, and so I'll go up and then on the days I'm up there, I'll also teach four of the students in the Edinburgh campus as their private teacher, um, which is cool because, you know, I think percussion is a little bit different from other fields. And the fact that if you have two percussion professors, um, they might have completely different areas of like strength and specialization comparatively. I mean, like, okay, you know, there might be a clarinetist who's a soloist and a clarinetist who's an orchestral player. Um, but a lot of what they do, you know, they still both play the clarinet um, versus, you know, uh, my colleague, uh, the head of the department here, his name is Mark Ramirez. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he's an amazing drum set player, such a great improviser. And I mean, I can play drum set, but like he's, that's his thing. You know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and my, my, my areas are other places. So we still have that relationship where one of my students, for instance, is really excelling and getting interested in jazz playing and really getting great at drum set. So it's like next semester, it's like, oh, you're going to study with Dr. Ramirez next semester. You're going to go play some drum set with him because, you know, he's going to get you to that next level. And we still are able to have that relationship just like, um, you know, when I was in school at Indiana, that the teachers at Indiana had that same thing. It's like, I'm studying marimba with Kevin Bobo, but if I want to work on my timpani excerpts, I'm going to go study with John Tafoya. Right. Um, so we're able to still kind of have that uh, for the students as well, kind of have a, a range of resources available. And so we're both available to everybody on either campus. Um, but as far as the living situation, which was your original question, yeah. um, uh, I personally live in a town in between the two cities. Mm -hmm. um, I blindly moved there when I took the job because I didn't, you know, that was a suggestion that someone made. And when I moved, I wasn't completely aware of exactly what the, um, the protocol was going to be because it's, it changes. So I live in between, um, but I've decided it's not my favorite because it just means I have kind of a long commute every day. Yeah. Um, and so my plan is to move closer to the campus that I primarily teach on. And so like, I have a longer commute a couple times a week, but now I'll at least be able to like drive home and make dinner and drive back instead of having just going into the office, be a day trip, you know? Right. Um, so it's, it's a definitely a balancing act and, but you know, if the worst complaint about like a job is the commute, you know what I mean? It's like, there's a lot worse things that could be happening. You know, eight years ago, I worked full-time at Target. So mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I still like this a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe you don't have as many khaki pants as you once did. I'm going to. Yeah. I, I only have three pairs of khaki pants now. So <laughs> my number has gone down. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about the students that you're, you're teaching. Cause that's a very specific area of Texas in particular that you're working in. I mean, you know, we all kind of know as percussionists, how Texas is different than everywhere else. You know, the, the beginning education is so strong because of the way so many of the schools are structured. Um, and that applies to 
down here as well. It applies to everywhere. Um, so you still get students that, you know, come in and they all have hands, you know, but then also, you know, the, the, the struggles that exist uh, are also still very much relevant, you know, with, you know, they all come in with the high, high level of ability, but also not all of them have explored the actual music as deeply, right? A right. lot of people work on their drumline stuff and yeah. they can all do it so well, but maybe they don't, they've never listened to a Mozart piece, you know? Um, that's not to lump everyone together, but you know, you 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 get a lot of that sort of same strengths and 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 weaknesses. Um, and so it's really nice because when I have a student coming in, I can pretty much uh, be assured that you know they can they can play the notes, and then we just have to work on you know bu building our musical ear and you know refining. Um, but then, of course, in this area in the Rio Grande Valley, um, you know, it's. Uh, there's definitely people that come from um, economic disadvantage and, um, you know, various other difficult situations uh, in their lives. And so um, that's definitely something to remain sensitive to, especially someone who relative, you know, comes from more privilege. Uh, so it's important for me to, uh, you know, make sure that I continue to be understanding and do my best to learn and, and be able to react to some situations that are unique and not, anything that I've, you know, maybe dealt with in previous jobs and in my own life. Uh, so, um, yeah, keeping that in mind is, uh, is I think really important. And as I'm here longer and I, I continue to learn, um, I think it's, it's, it becomes a little bit easier to cater to that. Sure. Um, but also, I mean, <laughs> I really, really like all of my students. Like everyone is, you know, like very respectful and for the most part, very interested in what they're doing. Um, and we have a good time. And, you know, as you know, I sort of tried to build the culture that I want to have among my students. Um, it's uh, I actually had a moment this semester where I became uh, like really excited because like a bunch of my students did something that I was going to ask them to do without me asking them to do it kind of thing. You know, yeah. they prepared it the way that I, they knew that I wanted them to. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> like this is awesome. Um, and so, yeah, uh, just some really great students down here. There's just maybe some people that don't have the same advantages as uh, maybe some other areas of Texas and of the country. We're going to back up and then we'll kind of fill out some of the details. So where'd you sure. grow up Marco? Oh, original. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Syracuse, New York. Okay. Uh, so right smack dab in the middle of the city, in the middle of the state. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I lived there um, my whole childhood until I left for college. Uh, and that was at Ithaca, mm -hmm. um, where I studied with Gordon Stout at the time. Yeah. Um, and Conrad Alexander, um, more of an orchestral player that also taught there. And Conrad was amazing. Um yeah. So that was pretty much it. Growing up, did you have any family members in the arts? Yeah. So um, my mom was a ballet dancer by trade oh, wow. and my, my father was actually a stand-up comedian. What? Um, yeah. So <laughs> uh, uh, my parents owned like a, a bunch of different comedy clubs over all, all the years. Um, that, Where? That, um, they uh, originally, my dad's originally from Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, and so it started there in like the seventies or I think the seventies. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember how old they are. Then I think um, from there, he and my mom moved to San Antonio in the eighties because like, I think they did like some market research and like figured out that that might be a good place to like start a new comedy business type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so my, they were more of the business side of things. Like my dad did stand up, but like, you know, they have the club for the people who are famous now to be coming through, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and we're talking about people like, like, you know, like Drew Carey and mm-hmm. like, you know, like Ray Romano, like those types of people who are like, like before they were TV people. Yeah. When they were all my dad's up. age, you know, like yeah, so okay. back, they're all in their twenties and they're like, try, like we travel around doing clinics at schools for no money so we can build up our CVs. Right. You know, when they're all doing like that stuff, then they ended up moving to central New York because my mom was from central New York and she had some family members that were um, having health issues and stuff. And so uh, they ended up relocating up there and that's kind of where we stayed. Um, I wasn't born yet. So they, when they moved to New York, then that's where I came into play. Um, But then I also have an older brother named Jason, who is also a professional percussionist. Mm. Um, He, um, he did his degrees at uh, Potsdam at Crane School. Um, And uh, he is, huh? Yeah, with Peter Peter Zach. Zach. Yeah. Yeah. Love it up there. Uh, And he's such a great, Peter Zach's such an awesome guy. Um, and, uh, so he, uh, now is a band director, like elementary and high school. I don't actually know exactly what he teaches currently, but he does like percussion lessons for the district and then, uh, conducts at least one band, I believe. And, uh, did the, a lot of the marching stuff, um, in a pr- pretty good school district in the Syracuse area called Liverpool. Um, and so that's where he is now. Uh, so it is kind of nice that we're the only two like musicians in the family. And so it's nice to, uh, at least have someone who actually has a pretty solid understanding of what I do. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that we've all like at, at you know, you, I'm sure you as well talking to your family about what you do and they only a little bit understand it because oh, there's yeah. so much more than what it sounds like on the surface. It's like, Oh, I, you know, I'm a percussionist. I play music. You're like, Oh, like drums in a band. I'm like, well, sort of, <laughs> but not the band you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's nice to have my brother who like understands when I'm talking about, you know, like Stuart Saunders Smith or something. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or uh, Stuart Copeland too. I mean, they yeah. know that too. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much, pretty much anything that my parents don't understand. <laughs> right. It's good. It's, it's a, it's, it's a larger shorthand than just being siblings, which is enough of a shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely grateful for that. And it, it with him being uh, quite a bit older than me, um, I was able to sort of, you know, he sort of went to music school before me. And we, it was one of those things where, you know, we had some people around us that knew how it all worked, but we didn't have like a private, neither of us took private lessons until like very, very late in the game, mm-hmm. mainly for financial reasons. Um, but, you know, we didn't have someone guiding him, like telling him like, Oh, you should apply to Eastman and like this, you know, we didn't, you know, have that guidance. And so my brother sort of blazing the trail, going through music school and kind of figuring out all that stuff that we all know now. And then I was able to have that knowledge when it was my turn to go through the process. Um, And so it's pretty Personally, I'm pretty grateful for that, that I got to learn from, you know, his, his struggles um, going through that process for the first time. Yeah, for sure. No, that's great. I'm curious, just one, one last thing about your, um, your dad with the, so did they, did they own like a a set of comedy clubs under a specific name or was it just, they had one here and then they, I think it was only one at a time. Okay. Uh, They were all called wise guys. That was the the trademark. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was only one at a time they moved to different places, but I was only like 
maybe seven or eight years old when like we were sort of done with that business. Sure. Um, and so uh, I only have like very, um, you know, just a few memories of like actually being around and being involved. But my dad continued to be involved with like doing like charity comedy shows um, in our hometown. He uh, he was kind of a local celebrity. Like he also spent some time on the radio and stuff like that. Okay. And so, um, you know, he definitely uh, had a lot of opportunities to continue to do entertainment related projects yeah. over our time living there. So, um, yeah, it was neat to be involved. That was definitely a a different way to uh, grow up as a young kid, you know, like couldn't find a babysitter. So I'm chilling in the office at the bar on Saturday night, Of course, <laughs> playing games on the computer and like doing my reading assignment for first grade. Oh, that, yeah. That's hilarious. I hadn't even put, put all that together. Um, I would drink my, my, my cocktail was uh, orange and cranberry juice mixed together. Nice. Yeah. I thought you were going to get Shirley Temple's. That was, that. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know what a Shirley Temple was at that point. It yeah. was the orange and cranberry as my go-to. Nice. Shirley Temple was, uh, I think it's seven up and um, maraschino cherry. Yeah. Cherry juice. Cherry juice. Yeah. So good. What is your dad's name? Uh, his name is Bruno Sharippa. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, he, uh, I mean, he's not like a name that's generally known like nationally or anything like that, but yeah. back where we're from, like we'll, we'll go out to dinner and like, he hasn't been in the comedy business for like 20 years or something or 10 yeah, years. Yeah. And we'll like go out to dinner and like someone will come up and have like a 40 minute long conversation with him. Like, Hey, and like my dad's just being nice and talking to them and we leave him like, Hey, who is that? And he's like, I have no idea who yeah. that was. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. So it, it definitely is a bizarre way to grow up for sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, that was, that was, that was fun. It's just, it was so long ago now. It sure. doesn't even feel real anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I, I definitely understand that. I, the, uh, there was a student that, uh, my wife was teaching who, um, her father did corporate gig comedy. That was his, um, that was his thing. And it was, and that was like one of those things where I, I had no idea that was a thing you could do as a career. Yeah. Which uh, was just be like the person who comes to like the team meetings and the, and does, and that's like your, your, um, your crowd. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And like, you know, and it was, I think it was cool because it was also things that, that would be done. Like, I think in the afternoon, like it wasn't the kind of like typical Friday night, Saturday night, late night kind of um, schedule that's more typical for, mm -hmm. for comedy. Yeah. Not showing, getting home at four 30 AM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, yeah. um, is it through your brother that you, you start doing percussion or is it, does it kind of develop outside? Uh, of I think anyone with an older brother, uh, generally understands how the uh, sibling relationship goes and who always wins the arguments. Right. Um, and him being six years older than me, <laughs> not you is the correct yeah, answer to that question. It's really tough to beat up a 16 year old when you're uh, in like when fourth grade. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, um, I mean, I guess I did build an interest in it. Um, just because like my brother was always doing it and I don't think I was necessarily like when it started, I don't think I was like necessarily that interested in like playing the drums. Mm -hmm. Um, but my brother was doing it. And like, there were a couple of times when he, like, when we were little where he would want to like teach me how to play. And like, you know, basically like I was forced to let him teach me how to play kind of thing. Yeah. 
Um, and regardless of any of that, it just turned out that, you know, by the time I got to, I think we started in fourth grade in my school district is when we started, you started lessons in fourth grade and then band in fifth grade, um, in my elementary school. And so when it got time to fourth grade, like I was going to start playing an instrument and then it was like, well, percussion made sense. Cause we already owned the stuff and I already kind of knew what I was doing. And then, you know, I got started and I was by comparison good at it because like everyone's starting from scratch and I already knew stuff, you know? Um, like I started on lesson six instead of lesson one. I remember that from my first day I started on learning five stroke rolls. Um, and so, you know, I guess, uh, like most things, like if you excel at them, it's a little more enjoyable. Um, and so I just kind of kept doing it and I liked it. Like I liked playing music, but I guess I didn't, I didn't really think about it as like, I liked playing the drums. I just liked playing music. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it was pretty much when I was in high school and my brother started getting involved with like collegiate percussion ensemble stuff. He spent some time at the community college in Syracuse, Onondaga community college, which actually has a really, really good music program. Uh, the professor there is Dr. Robert bridge. He's an Eastman North Texas guy. He taught like phantom regiment. Um, and he's really a really great teacher. And he works with these community college students, does a two or three year program to send them to a four year school. Some of them go to Eastman, you know. Um, and so my brother was there. And so I was able to go to like all their percussion ensemble concerts. And then I was able to meet, obviously, the professor and study a little bit with him. And I was able to play in their WGI group. Um, and so through all that, I started learning percussion ensemble rep and like hearing all the cool music that was way cooler than the breeze, easy snare drum, you know, uh, exercises I was playing. Um, and so then I started getting pretty interested in like certain music and then kind of built from there. Were you in this school district that you, you're telling me that you told me like your brother's currently at it or was that somewhere? It's like, it's like the next one over basically. Um, yeah, our school district was a little bit smaller in East Syracuse. Um, East Syracuse Manoa is the name of the school district. Um, yeah, it's a smaller school. It's just kind of your kind of run of the mill average, like just a school district. Sure. Uh, we had a pretty solid music department. Our marching band was pretty good. Um, but yeah, fortunately, there were a lot of good people there who like supported me and my brother and like cared about our success as musicians and made sacrifices to help us when we did stuff outside of school. So I, I'm really grateful for that. I wasn't as grateful for it when I was a kid because I didn't care, but um, <laughs> looking back, I understand what kind of stuff people had to do for us, for us to be successful back then. And so mm -hmm. it's pretty cool to look back and know we were supported. So I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, while you're growing up, are you involved in anything else that's uh, non-music related, like sports or student government or anything like that? Yeah, we were really into sports. Um, so I know now it's going to sound like I'm making stuff up, but my dad was also the U.S. national champion for Taekwondo in 1990. Nice. <laughs> okay. And so my dad has, a, he's been, a, he was a Taekwondo coach at a local university for like 30 years Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so he got my brother and I into Taekwondo, like really young. And yep. then also being into other sports, I played baseball and soccer and hockey. So, um, but that all kind of hit the back burner once music started getting bigger because marching band takes up a lot of time. And so when marching band and indoor started becoming a thing, um, the sports kind of hit the wayside. Uh, but yeah, I've always been, I'm a massive hockey fan still now. That's like, 
Pittsburgh Penguins. Oh, because um, so my dad's hometown teams. is Pittsburgh. <laughs> my dad's from Pittsburgh, so I grew up rooting for Pittsburgh teams. Mm. Um, so they chose me. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so hockey's still like actually like a pretty big part of my life, to be honest. But mm-hmm. um, mainly just in the watching capacity now. Right. Uh, yeah. So sports and stuff, and I'm also a huge gamer. Um, I play a lot of video games and I always have, and that's always been one of my biggest artistic inspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty outspoken about that on social media. So I think everyone who knows me is very well aware <laughs> that that is where I'm coming from. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was pretty much it, you know, um, you know, so it was pretty ordinary, I well, think in a lot of ways, but what was your, what's your game of choice, I guess. So as of this recording, yeah. uh, my total games played in my life is at 681. Okay. Um, cause I also have a list and all kinds of information. Mm-hmm. Um, but my number one, it's funny that you asked because I actually over the summer made my definitive top 20 games of all time. And my number one game is Pokemon silver okay. from 1999, second generation of Pokemon games. Uh, so not that I necessarily play it all the time anymore, but that's my number one favorite game ever. So is, is there, is there, is it, does it relate at all to like the age you were when you were doing this? Yeah. I think it's okay to take into consideration, you know, how it made you feel at the time. Cause back then too, you couldn't just Google everything. Right. And so, you know, you're playing a game and you can't figure out how to beat this boss, but you just got to figure it out trial and error because like you can't just pull out your phone you know, right. And also being younger, you know, there was maybe a little, the game was maybe a little more difficult than it would be now because I was like nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, there's just like parts of that game that, um, since not everything was spoiled before I played it for the first time, because I wasn't reading the internet, there's all kinds of like surprises in that game to be very specific. There's a point where after you like beat the final boss, you get to go to this whole new area that you had no idea you were going to get to go to. And it's like, whoa, mind blown. And like the way that I felt the first time I found out that that's what was happening, like I can never replace that feeling and I'll never get that feeling back because I can't experience that for the first time again. But I remember at that point, it was like full body goosebumps, like on the verge of tears. Like, I can't believe this is happening right now. And like, it's one of like the strongest emotions I've ever felt. And it was when I was nine playing Pokemon. So, you know- Yeah. So I think it's okay to take that into consideration. Um, it's not necessarily the best game of all time, but it's my favorite. Yeah. Well, if, if you've played so many different games, what I'm curious is as a sports, is there like, do you have a favorite sports game of the, do you do the sports side of it or are you focused on other types? Yeah, I'll play everything. (laughs) Um, to be like completely honest, like I think we've all gone through periods where maybe we thought about leaving music for one reason or another, whether it's being discouraged, you can't get a job or being overwhelmed. And I still maintain that like my next choice for a job or like a career is to be like a game journalist or something like that. Okay. So I'm, I'm really into playing everything and seeing how everything works and learning about just like you listen to a bunch of music and observe compositional styles. And, you know, maybe I'm not the biggest jazz person, but I'm still interested in learning about it. Um, and so when it comes to sports games, I mean, obviously I gravitate toward hockey games, right? but I think it still technically counts as sports. I play a lot of rocket league. 
I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, no, I don't know what this is. It's it's like a two-on-two two or a three-on-three three soccer game. Okay. But you're driving rocket-powered cars at the ball. Okay. And um, <laughs> like if you like use like your nitrous boost, you can like jump your car and like fly. Okay. But only like in limited quantities. But it it has like a really high ceiling of skill. Like you can get really, really good at it mm-hmm. to the point where there are people who now play rocket league professionally and make seven figures. Um, so like you can like literally watch rocket league world championships and there's people who are salaried members of teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent probably a good 600, 700 hours of my life playing rocket league. Not so much anymore because you go through philosophical uh, struggles there where it's like, do I really need to play rocket league right now? Or could I be practicing? <laughs> Cause it's like, it's not like I'm going to go pro I'm already pretty good. But yeah. It's not like I'm going pro. So yeah. what am I really doing here? I'm just like dumping time down the drain, you know? Yeah. Um, so I like I mean. to gravitate toward games that give me unique experiences, you know, a lot of story-based things, or mm-hmm. even if a game just has an interesting art style or a great soundtrack, being able to experience that is something that is life altering in a capacity. So part of the reason I'm laughing is that where I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say you were going to be like an esports guy. Yeah. Uh, if, if, it, if this, this percussion thing didn't work, <laughs> not, not the journalist, yeah. like the actual. Yeah. E-sport. I just don't want to spend that much time getting good at a video game. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I consider myself to be like, like with Rocket League, like I'm yeah. pretty good at Rocket League compared to the average person, but I'm terrible compared to professionals. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. really don't want to spend that much time practicing small technical things. Like I do that. I, I, I can only do, I can, I already do that in one area of my life, you know, and it's already hard enough. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. That's a good, that's a good point. I, I, so one last uh, video game question is because you mentioned your love of hockey. Have you played NHL PA 93? I have. That was my first hockey game. Okay, good. Cause that's the one that's a, that's the one that um, that was like the first one I played and that was famous cause it had the fights where yeah. you, you beat the guy up and then they're like, I mean, it's one of those things that's like, there's no way they would ever have that now, but back yeah. then it was like super fun to like get into a fight and then win the fight basically. <laughs> Yeah, I played on the Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was on the Sega Genesis, and had the cartridge that was like tall and had the the yellow EA Sports logo. Yeah, yeah, I used to play that with my dad and my brother, and we had the rule because I was a little kid. Yeah. There was the rule that you had to pull your goalie and let me score twice at the beginning of the game because <laughs> I was like five. Right. <laughs> so you go to Ithaca for undergrad. Yeah. Um, how are you? How do you know about the school? I mean, is it like kind of a nationally or is it because there you have a direct connection since you're not super far away from it? Yeah, it was only 45 minutes away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did know that, like, I think some of my my teachers through K-12 went there yeah. also and got their music ed degrees as I got older and started learning about that. But the way that I really knew about Ithaca was um, we used to host, I think they still do, the Central New York Day of Percussion happened at the community college that my brother went to. Um, So I got to go to all those when I was in high school and they had like, there was a year they had John Beck, Gordon Stout. There was another like ridiculously amazing person as the third guest artist. And I can't remember who it was, but I was like, are you kidding me? Like looking back, I'm like, how is that a day of percussion? (laughs) You know? Um, And I remember uh, that was at the time when I was kind of starting to get serious, but I wasn't taking lessons. And so I remember like, 
I just like, I need to learn how to play timpani. And so I just watched John Beck's timpani masterclass and then just copied everything that he did. And that's how I learned how to play timpani. Um, and, uh, I did the same thing. Yeah. Right. There, there are definitely worse places to learn. Right. Um, he's pretty incredible. Uh, and then I did the same thing with Gordon is the keyboard guest artist. You know, he talked about mallet choice and, and sound production and technique. Um, and so I knew who Gordon Stout was, obviously I heard the name because he's done a thing or two. Um, and then I kind of put two and two together that he taught at Ithaca. And to me, I was like, Oh wait, Ithaca, like that's a good school. And that's like close to here. And Gordon Stout teaches there. Um, and you know, so that obviously sparked my interest. Um, especially I was originally going to school for music education mm-hmm. and, you know, my thought process was basically like, I didn't think I would get into Eastman and that's another, the other really close school. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even apply there. Um, looking back, maybe I should have, who knows? Um, but I loved my time at Ithaca and I applied to some other schools as well, um, that my teacher at the time recommended. Um, but Ithaca ended up being the choice. Um, and then, yeah, I got to go there and study with Gordon and, uh, I had an amazing time there. That place was awesome. Yeah. Um, well, especially like the academic faculty, music theory, stuff like that. Just, it was such a great education. Yeah. Is it a, like a liberal arts school that has like a really awesome music department or is it like, is, is the music part of like conservatory style? How, how does it work in, with the university? Yeah. I mean, like back in the 1800s, it started as a music conservatory specifically, but now it's a liberal arts college. Um, pretty small. I think it's only like 5,000 total students or something. It's like not big. Um, and it's like ludicrously expensive, but then there's also like a lot of resources. Um, but yeah, the music school is like obviously one of the more, you know, renowned programs as well as the musical theater program which is a different program than the music program. Yeah. Um, and then like the communications, like TV and cinema and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's the kind of the digital and fine arts programs are, are the really strong things there. It's a weird thing because it's like also less than a mile from Cornell. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, Which school are you going to go to for your physics degree? Right. <laughs> you know, um, but no, it was, it was nice because, um, because it was such a small community, um, there was a lot of stuff that catered to us in the music program. Um, and we got a lot of attention and like, if you got accepted to a conference, they found the fu- funding for the students to travel to the conference, which isn't always a luxury at music That's programs. Very true. Um, and so, I mean, I think just like all schools, you know, there's some difficulties nowadays with with stuff like that. But um, when I was there, it was really booming and we had awesome faculty and great facilities. And uh, the city of Ithaca is also really cool. I really enjoyed living there. So I miss it a lot, to be completely honest. I really like my time there. Maybe a little less green where you are. <laughs> it's pretty brown. <laughs> Um, it's actually cold out right now. It's legitimately cold here. Yeah. Um, but you know, my first year when it hit 100 degrees on Christmas, I knew I was, uh, in for a wild ride. Yeah. So. <laughs> snow boots were not, not, not really coming out. No, someone made fun of me for having a snow brush in my car. Um, it's like, it's been there forever, but yeah, yeah I guess I don't really need it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know I've had other people who have studied with Gordon, but I can't think who they were at the moment, but they've, wrist technique is and finger technique is different right 
Yeah, Gordon. Like, didn't he kind of like create his own system, like for for holding mallets? He's a big proponent of like finding the technique that works for you. Mm-hmm. The quote that he gave me in one of my lessons that I always remember is technique serves to control the quality of your sound. You know, the purpose of technique is just to help you sound, make the sounds that you want to make. Right. You know, that's what it is. Um, and so I don't want to try to tell his story because, sure. I, you know, I don't know it. But right. from what I remember, it was basically like when he was young, his teacher, when he was a kid, taught him how to hold four mallets. But since like he was like his hands were small, he learned like a modified grip. But then he scored in stout and he got really, really good. Um, and then kind of just never ended up changing. Yeah. You know? And so I, I don't, I can't really go into the mechanics because I don't really know. But basically, like, it's just his grip that works for him. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, when, when I studied with him, uh, we talked about technique, you know, to the point where like, hey, you're doing something that's like objectively bad here and you should fix that. But when it comes to like, you know, if I play this octave on marimba and I hit it correctly and it sounded good and my hand looked bad, like who cares? Like you made the sound that you needed to and that's what matters. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of how that manifested itself sort of in the teaching, um, which I, I think was um, really helpful to me specifically because I tend to do stuff kind of against the grain and oftentimes sort of unorthodox as well. I have a lot of trouble, like I'm good at following directions, but I have a lot of trouble like completely perfectly replicating someone else's vision because I'm like always pushed to like make a change that like makes more sense to me or approach it my way. And so, um, you know, when I hold the mallets, I technically play Steven's grip, but I feel like if you compared me to the book, you'd be like, that's not good. (laughs) I gotcha. Well, I've, I've heard from other people who, um, who either worked with you or, or knew you in school and they were all just like, I I'm, I'm really annoyed because Marco is just like way better than me. And like, it just bothers me. She's like hitting all the right notes, like really fast and stuff. It was just, yeah. Yikes. <laughs> so your, your, uh, your reputation as a player has, uh, has, has come through on very, with various people. Um, well, it's nice to hear that other people have that opinion of me because that's, uh, <laughs> that's not always what comes out of my mouth. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. If like for me, if it's not, wow, I, if it's, if it's better than I suck, then like, that's a major compliment personal compliment yeah right <laughs> yeah i mean i'm flattered that anyone even thought enough of me to say anything so that that, that means a lot <laughs> that's awesome what are the other experiences within percussion like were you doing does i know does ithaca have a band i mean a marching band no very much not <laughs> okay so it's like but so is, is everything more concert experience oriented then yeah um i guess you know, I haven't been to every school ever, but I have been to enough schools that I think I have some range of comparison. Um, one of the big things I think with Ithaca is they were really big on academics, like academic music courses. Mm-hmm. My bachelor's degree was actually in music theory. Oh, okay. Um, and it was a bachelor's. Um, I ended up double majoring in music theory and percussion performance. Um, there were eight tenure track theory faculty when I was there for a music school of like 450 students. Gotcha. Um, like, so that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they were really big on new music and adventurous programming. So like the orchestra would always win awards for like adventurous programming. Like there was always a contemporary piece on every concert, you know, a lot of diverse, you know, composers and things like that. Uh, I mean, kind of related, 
what was Gordon or and or the the people that were were in the academic music classes pushing you to write at this point? Not necessarily pushing me to write. Um, I just wrote a lot, and Gordon supported that obviously because mm-hmm. he you know, knows a thing or two about that. Yeah. Um, so just a lot of my lessons, I might bring in a piece I was writing and we would work on it and I would perform, you know, in studio class and on recitals, my own pieces. Um, but I was able to like take composition lessons when I got to be an upperclassman and I was able to fit it in my schedule um, and stuff like that. I was able to pursue the avenues I wanted to pursue. Um, but I think, yeah, really what makes my time there unique is that I was able to do the theory degree And I think that had a huge impact on kind of who I turned out to be from there because, you know, I got to take our extra level of oral skills, which is like only soul fedging Elliot Carter, (laughs) Um, you know, and uh, you know, I got to take analysis of pop music and analysis of symphonies from 1825 to 1925. And like all those kind of really uh, 16th century counterpoint I got to take, you know, as a senior um, and I think that kind of stuff had a humongous effect on me as a musician, just because it caused me to like learn more stuff, you know, and have yeah. a, a wider frame of reference for the music that I'm playing now. And if that makes sense. Um, but I wasn't like, you know, it's not like we had like, you know, a West African drumming ensemble that toured the world or anything, you know, something unique like that. We had the steel band, which was you know, we played on every percussion ensemble concert, but it wasn't like our thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really what defines my time there is my ability to sort of get that wider range of knowledge and, and other universities I've been to, those opportunities aren't even available to undergrad students. Yeah. Um, there's some schools that don't even have a level of undergraduate theory that addresses 20th century music. Yeah. Um, and that was required for our degree there. Um, so, and it was an awesome class with an amazing teacher. One, I think one of the big things is that they only have enough, they only had enough grad students to fill the assistantships. So it was very much an undergrad program. And so a lot of those classes, what it actually was, was the graduate level courses, but undergrads could take it also. Mm-hmm. And then there were just two different syllabi, one for right. grad students and one for undergrad, but in the same classroom. Yep. So we're, yeah, we're, we're actually at Mizzou. We're doing that a lot too with um, cross oh, awesome. um, for those exact reasons. And yeah, they have to have different setups for um, like different assignments or different levels of assignments for the grad students, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. For standard, so. And getting to sit next to a grad student who really knows what they're doing in a class like that as an undergrad was also pretty amazing. I mean, for you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the grad student was like, I mean, there were some, there were some pretty, uh, pretty talented, um, grad students that were there with me, fortunately yeah. that I was able to learn from. And that was, uh, you know, something again, that I, looking back, I realized how much I got out of that at the time. I didn't really care. I just yeah. cared about, you know, going to class and practicing, but looking right. back, it's like, Oh, that actually had a gigantic effect on me. That's great. So where do you, where do you go for uh, grad school? Yeah. So I finish up at, um, Ithaca. I have, <laughs> about eight months off working at target having a great time. Okay. Um, and then I got, um, I auditioned a lot of places, but I ended up going to Indiana okay. for my master's. Um, they offered an assistantship. So, you know, it became a no brainer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I wasn't like completely sure that that was like the school I wanted to go to at the time. And then after like a week of being there, I'm like, this place is amazing. And I like never want to leave. 
And so, yeah, I spent those two years at Indiana. I studied a lot with Kevin Bobo, um, spent some time with John Tafoya, Steve Houghton, and Michael Spiro. Got to play in all of the non-Western ensembles, obviously orchestra and operas and ballets and all that stuff. Um, and then I ended up staying to start my doctorate as well. I wasn't done there after two years because there was so much more I could get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so from there, it's just another two years at Indiana. And then after my second year of doctoral coursework, I got hired at Tennessee Tech University. And that was back in 2016. I think you interviewed Colin Hill a while back. Yeah, that's the one who was like, just really, (laughs) it's like, he's so good at driving me nuts. (laughs) Colin's amazing. And so, um, yeah, I got to go and work with Colin. um, And that was weird. Uh, My first year at Tennessee Tech, I was still in coursework. So I was like, Tennessee. (laughs) And fortunately, being at a school like IU, there are a lot of students who win jobs in various areas uh, while still enrolled. And so they were really cool about allowing me to like convert some of my classes to independent studies so I could just live in Tennessee. Um, And so I would drive up once every few weeks for various like doctoral seminars. Um, And then uh, I took incompletes in lessons and then I drove back and did summer lessons, that kind of stuff, orchestra. And then basically all of my courses just became write a 25 page paper and turn it at the end of the semester, you know, under the guidance of your professor, which was actually kind of awesome because I maybe even learned more that way because I had to do the research to write the paper, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have the chance to like, you know, skate by doing what was required on homework assignments. You know, I had to actually learn things. Um, not that I wouldn't have, but, um, and then, yeah, so the one year of coursework got through all that. And then the next year still at Tennessee tech, I had, um, you know, all my doctoral exams. And then of course my dissertation, um, and then I was able to get that done and then graduated in 2018. And then from there, um, I had one, two more years in Tennessee after that, um, one year where I was kind of just doing my adjunct gig and nothing else. I was practicing a lot. Mm-hmm. And then, um, fortunately it was like not a lot of money, but it was enough to live in the very low expense of Cookville, Tennessee in my 500, 475 square foot studio apartment. That was like three minutes from campus. <laughs> um, that's like a, that's like a bed and yeah. like a desk and that's about it. <laughs> I had both of my computers, all my like gaming consoles and my marimba in the living room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like I, you get in, you have to like tiptoe, like squeeze through everything to like get to the, the bed. Um, and then uh, my last year in Tennessee, I was like, okay, you know, I need, I need more income. And so I actually got hired to be the office and the box office manager for the Bryan symphony, which is the, um, regional orchestra in town there. They actually like share the concert hall with the university. Um, and I actually got to work in admin for a professional orchestra, which was pretty cool. Um, and I learned so much. Um, but of course, meanwhile, I'm still teaching at the university and that turned into a pretty tough time. And I think we've all gone through those times that were a slog. And I had like my Wednesdays, I worked at the symphony from like nine to three. And then I went to campus to do marching band uh, from like three to six. And then, um, there was steel band. And then I taught lessons at 10 PM, 11 PM and midnight. Oh my goodness. Like those were my students official lesson times. Wow. Um, because that's what worked. And so it was days like that, 
And so it was not sustainable, but I did enjoy what I was doing at least. Sure. As unhealthy as it may have been. Yeah. Um, and then um, I was taking interviews and I was a finalist for quite a few jobs. Um, and then um, the UTRGV call came uh, two days before we locked down for COVID. So um, I slid in just before everything shut down and, and signed my contract and then made it through the rest of 2020. And now I'm here. So that, that's a good, that's really good timing. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, so, so two days before lockdown, you got the, you got the offer. So the, the, I submitted my, like, like accept my official, I accept this okay. job. Gotcha. I believe it was two days. Yeah. Might've been three days. Um, it was the same week. Yes. <laughs> it's a memorable time. Yeah. No matter how you, <laughs> and then we went to spring it. break and we never came back. Yeah. Yeah, pretty and, much. Yeah. It was a weird way to leave my students. Uh, that was uh, not very fun, but uh, uh, yeah. A couple of questions here mm -hmm. up here. So first off, just kind of living wise, what was it like moving out of New York State? I was young at the time still. Sure. Like, you know, I mean, I was 21, what, mm -hmm. 22, something like that. But I still consider that young. I mean, I, I had traveled a little bit within the U S but like, I didn't know anything. So when I knew, when I moved to Indiana, I was like expecting it to be the deep South, <laughs> you know, just cause I didn't know yeah, I've only yeah. ever lived in upstate New York. Um, and so it was different. I, I didn't, I liked being on my own. Like I'm not, I'm not someone who necessarily like gets like super homesick or like mm -hmm. anything like that. I was excited for a new experience. You know, most of the, um, the, stress of that mainly comes from, Oh, I'm an adult that has to like live on my own now, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so that wasn't too bad. Cause especially you're moving into like the controlled environment of another university. Bloomington, Indiana is not like the rest of Indiana, um, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, because it's, you know, a major university. And I went to a gigantic music school full of people that do the exact same thing as me all day. But then moving to Tennessee from there, that was my first time like, okay, I'm an actual adult living in a place that's not a controlled environment. And, you know, it was just, it's a lot different in a lot of ways. We don't have to get into all the ways that it's different, but, um, you know, there is, it is very different than where I grew up with, between weather and just the experiences that everyone you meet has had in their lives compared to everyone that I knew when I was growing up. So honestly, the biggest, the biggest difference is really like the weather. That's the thing. Cause that affects you every day. Yeah. I'm used to digging out of the snow in like negative 20 degree cold. And then now I'm down here in Texas where <laughs> it's yeah. literally my first day here. I tried to go for a run and I just turned around and went back inside. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> it's like, you're like, you're like, I smell like smoked meat, you know, and you realize like, <laughs> yeah, oh, wait, no, it's that's, me. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think it's just kind of a similar situation for everyone. You know, you don't yeah. realize how different, even different areas within our country are until you actually experience them full time. Obviously, you, you, you know, you took from various a uh, couple of professors while you were at Ithaca, you took from obviously, you know, kind of the whole gamut at, mm -hmm. um, at Indiana, but like specifically with what was the, what was similar, different studying with Gordon and studying with Kevin Bobo. And Cause I know Kevin's that's where his, yeah. One of his degrees is from. Uh, yeah. He also studied with Gordon. Yeah. There is a pretty clear difference. Um, and I think 
One of the big things with Gordon is I kind of describe my time with him and I don't know if he would describe it this way, but this is the way I kind of felt was it was almost like, have you ever gone bumper bowling? Like when you were a kid and you have the bumpers up in the bowling alley. I've done it a couple times as an adult. That's good experience. (laughs) And so the bumpers aren't there to make you throw a strike every time. The bumpers are there. Like if you really mess up, the bumpers keep it from going in the gutter. Right. And that's almost kind of what it felt like studying with Gordon was like, where I was 100% like myself all the time. And Gordon basically intervened when I did something really stupid, you know, he's like, okay, maybe don't do that. Yeah. yeah. But like, you're on the right, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wouldn't say that Bobo um, like micromanaged or anything, but he was like very like organized and like, short-term goal oriented, like, what are we going to accomplish for next week? Like he can recite like everything that I did for every week so far that semester, you know? Um, and he knows exactly what our goal is and exactly where we're trying to go and how we're going to get there. Um, and it's a, a little more like kind of regimented and a little more, um, micromanaged isn't the word, but you understand, you understand what I'm saying. It's more of a, a straight line instead of a funnel. I learned a ton from both of them because I got to really develop my individuality, you know, studying with Gordon. Um, and I feel one of the things I'm grateful for, and I feel a little weird saying this out loud, but I feel like the way that I play is very distinctly my way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, I mean, I obviously have things I learned from my teachers, but I don't think that you can like listen to me and be like, Oh, you play like Gordon Stout or, Oh, you play like Kevin Bobo. I play like, I like to think that I play like me. And a lot of the reason for that is because I was allowed to be that way. Um, but then with, with Bobo, it was like, hey, this is the way that you're going to do this. And that's awesome. Let's figure out the best way for you to do it the way that you're going to do it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was just a little more strict in a way. Yeah. No, I, 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 get, I get what you mean. With yeah. The... And I try really hard with my students as well to like, like, let's work on how we're going to phrase this. But then I find myself making them phrase it like me. But it's like, well, I guess we have to start somewhere. Right. Um, and so it's like, this is how I would do it. But, you know, you don't have to do it this way, but understand. And so that's, that's actually a tough part for me as a teacher is I don't want to try to force my artistic vision on my students because I love being able to develop my own. Yeah. Well, you... I I think, and you maybe you've run into this also, is that there's just it's it's a very different game for them because there's so much, uh, you know, so much of what they play, they can find a recording, mm-hmm. and so a lot of times that takes the that can take the decision making out of their hands if they just decide this is the version I like, I'm going to play this version of whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're not making the same kinds of judgments that I would assume that that Gordon was making you make because he was like, just kind of like leading you towards that. Yeah. YouTube was in its infancy when I right. was a freshman in college. And so um, I remember the only time that I ever like made a percussion decision based on something I saw on YouTube was when I discovered Black Sphinx by Leander Kaiser. Oh yeah. Random uh, or I just like that video popped up on YouTube and I watched some guy play it and I figured out what piece I was like, that's kind of cool. And then I like bought it and played it. Um, and that was like, that was it. Uh, <laughs> that's, and it wasn't any phrasing ideas. It was sure. just like, I just happened to discover that piece almost every time I teach a lesson, like if I have a student playing a solo marimba piece, they'll do something 
And I'm like, why did you do that? And like, oh, the recording I listened to, they did that. And it's not that it didn't sound good, but it was like, I don't know. I don't need to get into like the deep philosophical discussion, but it's like, I want to make sure that we're doing that for the right reason, not because we're copying someone, but because we know exactly what's written on the page. And then we meld it to what we want it to be artistically. Not that we just stamped this thing that we heard. Um, No, I, I, I understand where you're going with that too. Yeah. yeah. And so that is a tough thing to deal with because I guess what, until it started happening a lot in lessons, I didn't even think of that as being an issue um, because, uh, and it's not really an issue. I mean, they're listening to really good players. <laughs> you know, if you're going to play something exactly like, like Jihei Jung did, well, she's amazing. So please do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Particularly, particularly note accuracy, like, yeah, just knock yourself out on that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> by all means, <laughs> let's just understand how we got to that decision. Right. Well, that's, I think that's it, is that you're, it's always the question, I, I know I, I when I was taking lessons and, and my professor, my mentor would be like, okay, what, explain why you did that. And if we didn't have a good explanation, then it was like, start over because, mm-hmm. because, but that was the point was uh, to develop our, our own musicality and to be able to, to defend what our decisions basically. Yeah. Everything has to be intentional and very much on purpose. Yes. Kind of a, in a related question, and this is not necessarily specific to, um, specific to, to the schools you studied at, but. At Ithaca, did it feel like there were people that were there that you just never ran into? Because at Indiana, that is certainly the case. Like, I'm sure that yeah. their voice faculty, since there's like almost 20 of them, I think, that like barely interact with each other and they teach the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Funny story regarding that. I was in Omaha, Nebraska, um, playing with Heartland Marimba, mm-hmm. like maybe th- three, four months ago. I can't actually remember when it was. It might've been early November. Um, And I had a friend who plays in the Omaha Symphony. And so I met with him for dinner and he was with a group of other Omaha Symphony musicians. Yeah. And like four of them uh, went to IU. And uh, I was introduced to all of them because it was a group table of people I didn't know. I recognized one of them, but we didn't know each other. And one of the other people who I hadn't been introduced to yet was telling me that they remembered me from school and like we were in orchestra together and i'm like i've literally never seen this person before (laughs) (laughs) and like i was there for six years (laughs) like so we happened to be in orchestra together but i was in orchestra with a lot of people because there's like five orchestras like (laughs) um and i felt i felt bad because they recognized me um but it's like yeah i've literally never seen you before and like apparently we went to school together um But at Ithaca, it was very much everybody knows everybody, you know, at least the people who were around a lot, you know, obviously not everyone is as much a part of the community sometimes as others. But, yep. you know, the percussion studio was all really close. And at that time, there was like 20 of us or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like everyone knows when everyone's recital is. One of the things I noticed there is that a lot of people, like a lot of student performances were like really well attended. Mm. And when I left and went to other places, even at IU, you know, you'd have like, 15 people at someone's senior recital but at Ithaca it was like 50 yeah um and I think it was it was a little more tight-knit and everyone knew everyone and um a little bit of a smaller community so that was uh 
a really nice way to grow up, I guess, in a, in a sense, because I, I didn't realize at the time that the level of support that we all gave to each other wasn't going to carry over forever. Yeah. Um, like I give my first recital after leaving there, I'm expecting like a full audience and it's like three crickets and a tumbleweed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, this feels really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got opinions about your, about you, you're, you playing Merlin. Like, let me mm-hmm. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> They're not passive people at all. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a big culture change between the two schools, but I love both places equally, um, because they both allowed me to thrive. So, yeah. What's, what was, what went into the decision to stick around for your doctorate there? I was just thinking of like, where do I want to go for my doctorate? Do I want to start my doctorate right now? And I decided pretty much that I did. Um, I'm a pretty anxious person, kind of full disclosure. I have really, really high level of anxiety, um, especially back at that point in my life. So there were a lot of maybe not so rational parts of the decision as well. But um, in general, it was, do I want to start my doctorate right now? The answer was kind of yes. So I still had a way to practice, which sadly is a factor in a lot of our decisions to do things, I think, as percussionists. Yeah. Um, but then I was looking at schools. I had been talking to other professors and thinking about what programs I might be interested in. But then I was like, well, I would choose IU over all these places. Like, I would rather stay here because there's way more to learn. I'm already here. You know, I guess the only disadvantage was it like I wasn't able to like keep the same assistantship from my doctorate kind of thing from a purely educational standpoint, like I didn't see a reason that I would go somewhere else just to go somewhere else. Sure. You know, um, I understand, you know, going somewhere else, so you can get more perspective, but it's like, I'm getting a ton of perspectives here. And I only spent out of my whole time there. I was, I only spent seven weeks studying with Steve Houghton yeah. because there was so much to do, you know? Um, and so it just, it seemed like the right choice from a purely musical and educational standpoint, plus to build on the opportunities I already had available to me. Yep. Um, I had a good relationship with many of the non-music faculty as well. So um, I had jobs working in the music library and the archives of traditional music. And I learned so much from those. The new music choir, Notice it's called, um, they would they would hire me to play percussion whenever they needed a percussionist, which was all the time mm-hmm. because they did a lot of really cool contemporary music. So I got to like travel with them and play at conventions. And I was on like three albums with them, you know, and those are opportunities that I got from staying there. You know, it just, I felt it was the right decision and I'm, I'm glad I stayed because I got what I wanted out of it. So. Yeah. I mean, I was someone who did my master's and undergrad same place. And I know mm-hmm. I have no number of people who've done that. And one of the things that I think we've all kind of realized is that after two years, frequently, you're like, I kind of feel like I'm just getting started here. Mm-hmm. You know, why not just just continue on? Yeah, absolutely. And especially at a, at a bigger school that has so much to offer. I remember like I actually remember joking with a friend, like right when I started my doctorate, I actually hadn't even gone in one of the music school buildings at that point. <laughs> like after two years, I hadn't even been in every building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How do you know about the the position in Tennessee while you're still a doctoral student? Fortunately, I had some good guidance when um Again, without getting too detailed, basically, I had some good guidance on kind of how to start getting my name out, um, you know, basically by traveling around and doing clinics and stuff like that. And so um, my first year of my master's, I ended up having some success in marimba competitions. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was able to sort of use that as a talking point to be like, hey, ex professor at this school, like, can I come into a clinic? I just like won this. And like, I'd love to do a recital and talk about whatever, and I'll do it for free because I'm 22. Um, and, uh, so I ended up getting quite a few clinics at various schools. Um, glad I got that out of the way early because you're not very good at it when you first start doing that. Um, in 2014, in the fall, I did a clinic. I did a tour of Tennessee for like two weeks. Hmm. Um, and so I did University of Tennessee. I did Tennessee Tech. I went to Lee with Andy Harnsberger. Mm-hmm. Um, where else did I go? I went other places. Middle oh, Middle Tennessee State. Okay, yeah. Um, I hit one of the schools in Indiana, a couple schools in, Indi- in the state of Indiana. And so I met a bunch of people and got a lot of experience there. But of course, one of those places was Tennessee Tech, where Colin taught. Yeah. Um, and we were connected. We, he, we missed each other at IU. We were never in school together at IU, but we knew all the same people. And so when that job opened, I feel like I had sort of a foot in the door to be considered because he had already met me and seen me do things. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I was a little bit lucky too. Um, just, I think because of the, the people who applied, there were actually some ridiculously strong applicants for that position. Um, and you know, I had, you know, I was fortunate um, to be given that opportunity. Um, yeah. so I made sure that I grabbed it the best I could. Yeah. But as you said, you take that job and you're not done with your coursework. No. Um, this kind of leads into a, a different topic that I want to get sure. to because I think Colin brought this up talking about you, which was just that you were doing so much with the teaching. And, but you also needed to make an income and like more of an income. So you took like the, the, um, you know, the admin job, like you were mm-hmm. saying, and, um, and at some, like you're do while you're doing all that for those years, when you're finishing your doctorate, you're still there. What's it going to take for me to get the job? I mean, what, what, yeah. how are you holding up? I mean, now looking back, it makes a lot more sense. Um, I was 26 when I got hired at Tennessee Tech, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so that's pretty young. And yeah. obviously age doesn't come into consideration for hiring, but I was very clearly someone that didn't have experience. Mm-hmm. I had perform, I had plenty of performing experience, but right. like, you know, I got, I stopped being angry about being told I didn't have enough experience once I had my first day of getting experience because I'm like, okay, I get this now. Um, But I mean, in all fairness, I was, you know, still in my twenties and I didn't have a family or anything. So I made enough money to like not die. Um, And so, you know, especially with my, you know, the modest way that I tend to live, but it wasn't really until I started kind of thinking about my future where it's like, okay, like a change is actually like pretty necessary. Like I have a college job, I'm getting this experience. That's why I jumped at the opportunity to take it because it's hard to get even that. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, so that kind of stunk, but um, I enjoyed doing it. And at that point, um, you know, I guess I wasn't at that point concerned as much about valuing my own time. Um, that's one of those like self-care health things that a lot of people like to, you know, be better about. Um, and I think when, um, maybe this is a deeper discussion, but I think, especially as percussionists, I think we're kind of intrinsically taught to like, you know, always spend more time than everyone else to get to the same place. Like we're always at rehearsal an hour early and leave an hour late. Um, you know, 
you get your first few gigs playing like a musical or something like that. You don't get paid extra for cartage. You get the same $500 as everyone else, even though you were there an extra like 13 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a good gig. If you got 500 on that, on that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember the first gig I got where they paid me for cartage and I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, is this a joke? (laughs) Um, And uh you know, and so I think, you know, growing up, it's even being in drumline, it's sort of like the drumline culture where like, we're staying after rehearsal to like work on this. And like, no, one, I never thought of second thought about it. I want to be good. So let's do more. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of trains you, I think, to like value your time a little bit less. Um, and so I didn't really have a problem with it because it was like, well, yeah, I'm pouring everything into this because this is what I've wanted to do my whole life. Yeah. Um, but as I got a little bit older and started to act like more like an adult and like see like my contemporaries, like, you know, moving on with their lives, like, okay, maybe like I should do something about this and maybe like take a little better control and like not do so much stuff for free anymore and stuff right. like that. And so fortunately, you know, obviously getting this job and now it is an actual salary. That is what I'm worth. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit different and they're fortunately again, in this position, they're very respectful of our time. Like you can't have more hours than this of teaching. Like you can't have an overload. I was like, Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. Well, and you probably, is this the first, had you had like insurance and stuff? (laughs) No, I'm serious. Like, yeah, I'm doing quotes right now. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was like, it was like Medicaid and stuff. Um, yeah. There was nothing, there was no job security or insurance in the adjunct gig. So, right. you know, it was like the marketplace and stuff like that. Um, and before that, like my, my family situation growing up wasn't always great either. So like I never had health insurance. So hmm. um yeah. So that's also scary. And that starts to weigh on you. Like the first moment that something you start feeling sick or something like, uh Oh, right. <laughs> and I know I'm laughing about it, but I think it's the same anxiety that a lot of people that have been in our positions have. This kind of leads, I think you're, you're, you've hinted at some of these items already, because when you talked about the, like the drum line, you talked about like your schedule and you had those days where you were, you were starting your lessons at, at 10 PM at night and, and all that, like that makes sense because it's what you you it's what happened to work out for that day, but it's also there's also a point when you probably are like, I cannot possibly keep doing this for much longer, or or I will like lose it. Yeah, that was what was happening in 2020. Yeah, um, I knowingly took on too much. Mm. I also gave two recitals that year. Oh. Um, on top of everything. So I literally did nothing but work and practice. And for the most part, I mean, I did find that fulfilling because I went to bed every night feeling good about what I accomplished. But again, you know, basic like personal health is like important. I'm glad that I've started to sort of like take better care of that because you don't, sometimes you don't realize the negatives that are coming out of that behavior until it's like too late. So, right. I mean, and that's part of where the, you know, some of like the job insecurity can come in, particularly if you just, you just snap like at the wrong person at the wrong time. And and yeah. it's not because there's anything necessarily wrong. It's like, you just didn't sleep. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, you're like, oh my God, what, what, oh, is it over? Like, you, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. I never, I never got into that situation, but okay, as someone who is pretty anxious, I've been afraid of that before. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> like, yeah. oh no, I graded the student's paper wrong. What if they complain about me? Yes, <laughs> and then yeah. I can never get hired ever again. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that it, that enters your brain for sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm trying to get a retail job and I'm not even getting called for an interview because I gave them my honest resume. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a, see, there's your, there's your boundaries. You, you found them. Yeah. yeah. I did. I did. Um, before I got hired for the symphony back in 2019, yeah. I was applying for jobs at like GameStop and old Navy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't even getting called to interview. And I just have my resume that I use, but it does say that I have a terminal degree. So I guess that was my bad, you right. know, like, but I don't want to lie. Right. Um, and so like, yeah, that was the tough. Like I, I, I was having trouble getting hired, like an, in an entry level retail job. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. And I, the other, the last kind of bit on this is that, as you said, you get hired right before the pandemic, mm-hmm. which, but because of that, you don't have like, and you don't get to really have closure with who you were teaching at in Tennessee. Yeah. And that's rough. I mean, that, I know that's rough. Cause I, because I, I've had other people I've talked to who um, not necessarily cause it was pandemic, but like they, they can, they like know that like, these are the students that they've really brought up. And then they've had this, you mm-hmm. know, this other opportunity come up that they have to kind of bail faster or in a different way than they wanted to. Yeah, I had I had really good relationships with a lot of my private students um, at Tennessee Tech, and um, fortunately, I mean, we still met. We like I we I made a Discord server, and mm-hmm. we met we met over Discord. And instead of having lessons and percussion ensemble and stuff, I made listening assignments. So like every week, they would have to listen to like bar talking trader for orchestra in its entirety. And then I made like a very specific, like guided listening guide, like, Oh, listen in first movement here and what happens here in the bassoon. And then tell me about this, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so at least we're learning something about music, you know? Um, and so we still met like over zoom, but literally I never saw any of them in person ever again. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was definitely weird, especially cause I had invested in being there and people were used to me being there. And then they come back and I'm gone. And um, there was some other weird stuff because Colin uh, Hill also became the director of the School of Music um, on an interim basis currently. Um, So they hired two new percussion people to come in. So not only, you know, was I gone, but like both of their percussion teachers had changed jobs technically. Um, So I I imagine that wasn't the greatest experience. I mean, the new people that came in were great, I'm sure, but, you know it's a little jarring when that big of a change happens. Oh yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I finish up with random ask questions. Sure. First question, an issue in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I got to be careful on this one because I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anything on anyone. I know what you mean. Um, I love the marching arts. I grew Mm -hmm. up in the marching arts and I think that the marching arts are of great value to pretty much any percussionist. But I do get bothered when people are brought up thinking or not thinking, but as if that is the only thing that matters, Um, especially when you're going to go to music school, you're going to be a band director. You know, I think it's important to understand that while that's awesome and there's a lot to learn and you're going to do it in the future, that there's so many other areas of music, especially as a percussionist, that you need to develop touch and tone and knowledge in. Um, and I think that 
with that sort of one track mindset, it can really hamper your development once you get to the college level. Um, I mean, you have the hands to do literally anything, which is awesome. But, you know, sometimes you see people come out and that's the only thing that they know. And so it's like, okay, let's make a musical phrase on the marimba. But, you know, then it's, I can't actually read pitches or, you know, you know, even like sometimes in an extreme case, and I'm not saying that that's everybody, but I do think that it's really important for percussion instructors at that level to, um, to work, to make sure that their students are exposed to the widest variety of music possible and help them get just as excited about everything else as they do about the marching arts. I'm not saying that they have to know every Beethoven symphony by the time they come out, but they should have, you know, listened to at least one jazz album and at least be able to play swing time on drum set, you know, and at least be able to understand how, how to like phrase or whatever their snare drum part in their band pieces they're non-marching band, band pieces. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and at least have done some work, you know, on reading pitches, <laughs> um, things like that, or vice versa, depending on what you played. It just, it's about, it's bothersome to me when someone, you know, if that's all you want to do and you're going to be an engineer when you grow up, I don't really care. But if you want to come to music school and you know, your student wants to come to music school, they should have played something other than their marching band music and their all state auditions. But, you know, I also understand that, you know, there's also pressure to be successful in those areas as a teacher. And not every student, not every school allows you the time to explore more than those things. So, you know, it's a, it's a slippery slope. So I don't want to sit here like I'm on my high horse, having never actually been in the position to teach those things before. So um, I'm kind of privileged to be in the, where I, where I get the best students. <laughs> right. I, I, I understand. I get, I hear you on that. Yeah. And I was going to say the other, the other extreme of that is, is to get the students who have only played drum set mm-hmm. and they don't want to do anything with like mallets or, or pitched instruments and mm-hmm. like trying to get them across that line too. Yeah. And I think it's tough because when you get a student who's really, really good at like a specific area, when they come into school, they probably really love doing that. And so like I've had students who pretty much only played drum set when they come to school and they're really, really good. And they know every song by every band and like, oh, let's learn some jazz and like sick, listen to everything, throw down. Like, this is so great, but they just don't have that same bug to get going in other areas. And it's really hard to just make someone get obsessed with something, right. you know? And so what, what do you do there? I know for me, I got really into playing solo literature when I was younger. I pretty much only played marimba. No one made me that way. I just got really interested in it and learned a bunch of marimba solos. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then getting myself to be interested in practicing orchestral timpani excerpts Um, That took a lot of work for me to build that level of interest, which I now have, Mm -hmm. but it didn't just happen. All right. uh, Other questions. Um, What's the most, since you, you, you've talked about your modest, um, you know, you, you you know, like you, you keep your your home pretty small or or you have in the past. Um, What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I do own 21 pairs of shoes. Okay. Um, are they like sneakers or shoes? Some, some of them are like, you know, flagrantly bright colored, like Adidas and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. I have a different pair of dress shoes to go with each of my belts. Nice. 
Um, so I always can match my belt to my shoes, things like that. But I'm still like, you know, I'm pretty thrifty. The shoes that I'm wearing right now, I have these nice brown dress shoes on, but they were $4 at Walmart. Nice. I'll show them to you right there. See? Yeah. yeah right? Those are nice good. Shoes, right? Yeah. $3.99 yeah. at Walmart. Sweet. So, uh, you know, you can, you can be impractical, but also thrifty. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That's, <laughs> those are not separate things. Yes, of course. Gotcha. All right. Um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I've, I've discovered over my life that, um, I, I think I act a way that, uh, warrants impressions <laughs> among some of my friends. So, um, there are various aspects of who I am that people uh -huh. tend to imitate, um, <laughs> like in a humorous way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, one of my really, really close friends from undergrad without going too deep into the story, basically sure. we threw a party for a bunch of the music students on Valentine's day, mm -hmm. but we threw a Halloween themed costume party on Valentine's day. <laughs> um, and you know, it was a college party, so I'll fill in the blanks, but um, my friend came as me, not just me, but on a recital earlier that year, I had performed Globacar's corporal. Mm -hmm. You familiar with the piece? Uh, I'm like more by name, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you, you wear only canvas pants and it's a lot of like body percussion slapping and like weird oh. facial expressions and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I had performed that and it made quite the impact because people are not used to necessarily seeing that, especially from me who at the time didn't do as much like avant-garde music. Yeah. Um, so my friend came to the party dressed as me performing that piece um, so he wore nothing but white pants, no shirt or anything. He had a black curly Afro wig. Nice. Um, and then he took paint and hand printed all over his body <laughs> for how my body like turned red after I was slapping myself for the piece. And then every time someone would talk to him, he would just grunt and slap himself a whole lot, uh, the whole night. Um, that's, that's really so, good. Yeah, that was flattering, I suppose. Then, yeah, I had I had a student at Tennessee Tech who um, <laughs> who wrote a piece that was a stream of all of his favorite quotes from me in lessons. Oh, and so he like did like kind of like some like uh, improvisation on a few non pitched instruments mm -hmm. while like speaking some of the things, and it was pretty. Um, pretty bothersome to me because there were some things that I can't believe came out of my mouth in a professional <laughs> situation. Uh, so we won't get too deep into that. But <laughs> then the other thing he did is he had another student dress like me. He actually went on Amazon and ordered like the exact shirt and pants that like they remembered me wearing and then sat like at the computer in the recital hall, like with my posture, like trying to act like I acted in lessons while the other student played the piece. Oh my God. And it was called uh, Stoked About Sporks was the uh, title because um, I guess the, the main triggering like quote of all this was um, he came in asking if I had any fork, like plastic forks in my office mm -hmm. for him to give to his girlfriend to eat lunch. But all I had was sporks from Taco Bell. Yeah. And so I'm like, I have this. And he's like, she's not going to want this spork. And then I suggested that he break up with her because you shouldn't date someone who's not stoked about sporks. Um, 
<laughs> and so that became the uh, the basis of uh, of that piece. So maybe oh. not my most uh, pedagogically sound moment, but uh, it's kind of funny, I guess. That's no, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> that's so great. I mean, and I mean, and your friend dressing up as you for the global car. I mean, that's like a deep cut. Like you, yeah. Like you know that that's like someone who's got your back. Yeah, there's a very there. small subset of people in the world who would find that humor. Right. Or would get it or like have it like not need to ex- explain to him. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's music school. That's the beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. All right. Uh, next question. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? So I'm not a huge movie person. I've okay. only seen in the past like 10 years, I've seen two movies in theaters. Oh, wow. okay. Um, so like, I'm, I'm really not, cause I play video games. Sure. So it's tough to answer uh, because yeah. like, I don't have, I guess my favorite movie, although maybe, you know, might not be my favorite to suggest to people nowadays, but I really enjoyed super bad when it first came out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because it came out like a day after I graduated high school. Oh, so right. it just like really resonated with me. Of course. Um, and I really non-ironically like the jackass movies. Um, yes. Yeah. The- <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, incredible it's, yeah because because it's clearly a safe environment for them to be doing all of this really dumb stuff yeah like and so and then they they like support each other doing really dumb stuff i don't it's like yeah I, I, it's about friendship it is it's not mean-spirited no it's gross and and really horrifying yes yeah but definitely the, their whole thing is that they never do something at the expense of another person who's not in on the joke it's like right. everyone is in on it they're not being mean to anybody right um they're just destroying themselves yeah <laughs> for yeah. our entertainment yeah um I guess my, I guess when I think of a bad movie, my least favorite movie, I think my least favorite movie experience ever was Balls of Fury, which came out in like 2007. That the ping pong? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My very first day of college at Ithaca, like literally day one of classes, Uh a bunch of the upperclassmen percussionists invited some of the freshmen to like go see a movie that night. And so it was like, oh, cool. You know, first day of school. And we all went and we saw Balls of Fury. And it was awful. And I remember one of the people in my studio in the middle of the theater stood up like, this movie sucks. And then just like stormed out in front of like a full house of people watching. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll always remember that. that was like the very first day of my freshman year of college. And it was, it was really bad. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. I yeah. like I like, uh, love those things since you mentioned the, you know, the jobs that you were taking to kind of just kind of making it make anything work, what was your worst job growing up? Honestly, like I didn't have that many that I hated. I had, um, I worked at GameStop, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then I worked at Target, which I guess that was probably the worst one. I worked at Old Navy. Old Navy was fine. I had a good manager. Um, and then I had college teaching positions, libraries, and then playing music. So yeah, I guess it would have to be Target. Um, yeah. Target was awful. <laughs> so uh, sorry, anyone listening that's involved with Target. Um, I think you're great. Uh, but I had a pretty bad I had a pretty bad time working there. So yeah. Well, this was was this this was what after undergrad? Uh yeah. It was yeah. the uh, it was the Target in the Ithaca Mall in Ithaca, New York. Not to be specific. <laughs> I got you. 
<laughs> oh, that's funny. What's a a reference, uh, like a pop culture reference or something that if you run into someone and they're like, hey, I like this, and you immediately go, we're good. Oh, good. What's that for you? Uh, there's probably a couple. Let me think of the best one. There's a video game called Borderlands. It's a video game series. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a, a unique like art style shooting game, but it has right. role playing elements. So like you gain experience points and level up and get stronger, and you can play it online with other people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it's it's really a really great game series, and it's very memorable. There's a lot of hilarious things like references that fans will understand that everyone else will be like, "What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. One of the um, there's a uh, the main bad person in one of the games has a pet pony made of diamonds named butt stallion um <laughs> like it's that kind of humor yeah yeah um anyway there's the logo for that game is just a simple circle with like kind of a triangle in the middle okay um and it's very simple um and one day i was at the grocery store when i lived in tennessee and the car parked next to me had that logo as a sticker on their gas tank cover and the person came out and like started loading their car. I'm like, Hey, is that your fan of uh, Borderlands? And they're like, yeah. And like, we just had a conversation about it. And it was like, just pretty awesome. They just had this little sticker on their car and it was just this one little logo from the game, not even something that fans of the game might always recognize kind of thing. Um, so that was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> Love it. Um, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? So many places. I'm most likely, yeah, traveling to Italy um, over this summer. And that's actually, sadly, going to be my first time leaving North America. I've been casually with some of my friends, like, planning our friend's trip to Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been planning it for, like, 10 years. Sure. Now that we all have careers, it'll eventually happen. But I think I want to I visit Japan and just see, um, you know, a bunch of different cities and, you know, all the all the cool touristy stuff and then hopefully dig deeper. Um, there's just a lot to be interested in, um, especially being someone who's really into like, like video games and a lot of the games I like, you know, are coming from, you know, studios in Japan and see some of the environments I see reflected in games I like and obviously food and, and, and culture. Um, yeah. So that's one of the big ones. Um, Italy is somewhere I've wanted to go. So I'm glad to visit. I'd like to go to England as well go to London and, and, and see some, some of the sites over there. Um, also bonus points for England because I can speak the language. So (laughs) yes, that is, that is a nice, a a more relaxing situation to, for that. But to be honest, I would be down to go literally anywhere. I just want to see like everything. (laughs) No, that's great. You should strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. I have one that I don't think I should tell on a public forum. Okay. So, um, so you go to an alternate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm only trying to decide. It's like, it's not means it's not like about a person or anything sure. like that. It's just, it has a lot of poop involved. Um, <laughs> okay. So. That can still work. You're, you're not, a, you can just protect the name. Can I tell name. a story about, about poop? Please. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> when I was in school, uh, I, it's not about a specific person. So when I was in yeah. school, 
uh, in undergrad, the end of the year, the night before graduation, we did this, we called it the commencement Eve concert. And it was this amazing, really cool concert in one of the gyms. Like you put up black tarps everywhere. They set up five stages and it's like the orchestra on one, the marimba ragtime band on one choir. Um, and then there's like musical theater soloists and it's an hour of nonstop music going from stage to stage with a light show. There's like a $500,000 light fixture on the ceiling yeah. and it's all directed by one of the composition professors at, at Ithaca, Dana Wilson. Mm -hmm. And it, it was such a great concert. And we did the night before was like the open dress rehearsal for anyone in the community. And then the, the night of was only graduating people and their families yeah. But it was like 2,000, 2,500 people in the audience for each concert and we're antiphonally around them. And there's like a voiceover that plays in the dark in between each musical selection, tying everything together into a theme. It's really amazing and beautiful. Yeah. And um, I was fortunate enough to play on it most years. I got to perform Marimba Spiritual on it one year, which yeah. was cool. Yeah. And so there was one concert when... Um, I was on the stage with the marimba band. We were getting ready for the dress rehearsal and I'm with a couple of my friends and Gordon Stout is there. And um, one of my colleagues is like, Hey man, did you just like fart? And I'm like, uh, no, like you probably did. We started having like the you smell that you dealt it argument, like children, um, yeah. 19 year old me, I still consider that a child. Um, yes. And so we're like, it smells so bad over here. Like someone definitely farted and like, we're joking about it, but also getting kind of mad because it's like starting to like, you're starting to like gag because it smells that bad. Oh boy. And so we go to the back of the stage to go down the stairs so we can run. We have to run behind the audience to another one of the stages in the middle of the performance in the dark, because we have to play in the orchestra also, as well as the stuff on that stage. Yeah. And yeah. so we get down to run back to the orchestra stage to get ready for the show to start. And there's just like a huge circle of just like diarrhea Oh. all over the floor oh. in like the little like private alcove between the stairs and the back corner of the stage. Oh like, so God. people in the audience, if they looked at the stage, they wouldn't be able to see it. Cause it's like in between the wall and our staircase in the corner of the stage. Yeah. But somebody, I guess, just ran over there in secret and yeah. just like had their business yeah. in that yeah. private little corner. Cause they couldn't get to the bathroom. Yeah. And it's just like, what are we supposed to do right now? <laughs> like the concert's about to start and this is here. Yeah. And so we ended up running and telling the director and then getting someone from facilities and they had to like clean and sanitize like the entire area. And we started like 25 minutes late. Oh my God. Um, but it was like, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I couldn't believe like you're, I, I was so nervous. I had to play Marimba spiritual and yeah, yeah. Like, from all these people. And I had to sit for 40 minutes and then play it. So that's even scarier. Yeah. And I'm worried about that. And then I'm like, okay, this is unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, uh, that is hopefully that was the, uh, the cleanest way I could have told that story. That is insane. Yeah. That's, yeah. Wow. That's probably, probably the most unexpected thing that's ever happened to me during a performance. <laughs> I mean, if it get, if it gets more unexpected than that, then I, I don't even know what to tell you. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, it definitely helped break the tension. Yeah, I wasn't right. nervous yeah. anymore. It's like, okay, well, at least I know I'm not having the worst day of everyone in this room. <laughs> so. I'm just playing a 15 minute marimba solo. Like I, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in front of all these people. Yeah, yeah. So wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's that. That's that. All right, last question, Marco. Yeah, one, one piece of art. Uh, it could be music, movies, books, 
podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, video games, whatever has impacted you the most recently? Mm, recently or ever? Yeah. Recently? Well, you use your, you can, you can, it's your call what recently means. Recently in like a recent memory, like that I have a distinct, very clear remembrance of how it impacted me. I would say, I, can I name two? Is it okay if I name sure. two? Yeah. They're both video games. Okay. Um, uh, the first one is Final Fantasy VII Remake, um, which just recently came out. And it's, you know, a modernized remake of one of the greatest video games and greatest video game stories of all time. And it was just absolutely enthralling and immersive. And it was like, when I was done, I was so sad that it was over, you know? Um, and it's very rare. Like sometimes I listen to like, when I listen to like the ride of spring for the first time, I remember like I was ready to cry when it was over, not because necessarily the music was like pushing me that far, but because there wasn't any more left. Right. And I wish there was more, you know? Um, and then for a pretty different reason, um, the life is strange video game series, those games are um, what you would call like an interactive story where you have a character where you walk around and interact with stuff, but you're really, it's almost like you're playing a movie. So like your personal choices do affect the story, but it's overall, you're just playing through a story. There's not like challenge. You're not like fighting enemies. Yeah. Um, and those, those games all have stories that touch on some pretty tough subjects. There's yeah. one that deals a lot with, with racism. There's one that deals a lot with like gender identity, but in video game form. And as you control a character going through all these experiences, um, it really hits you hard. Um, especially like as you control a character and, and interact with others, the way that people talk to you and treat you. Um, if you're someone that's never experienced that treatment for the same reason, like maybe in some situations I haven't because I'm not, I don't identify the same as this character I'm playing as when someone's actually looking at you and treating you in a certain way or saying those things to you. And you're actually now the one on the receiving end of it. That's like a whole new way of making you start to understand others point of view. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely some moments in those games that hit me pretty hard where it's like, now I have a little bit of a better understanding. I'll never truly understand, but now I have a little bit better of an understanding what it feels to have someone actually say this to you, things like that. So I would say that those are the two, one because of the wow factor and one because of like the changing who I am factor, you know? Yeah, that's great. All right, Marco, thank you. We are done. Awesome. Really yeah. It. Thank you so much for having me on. It was so great to meet you and, and get to chat. Yeah. I uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, you too. This was, this was great. Such a blast getting to hear from Marco Sharippa during this interview. I wish him the best of luck on continuing to build the program at UTRGV for his good cheer his continuous work in the video gaming career. No, no, he has a career. That's why he's on the show. But also for his hopefully wonderful upcoming travels. This week's rave is the 2021 film The Worst Person in the World, starring Renata Reinsvay, Anders Danielson-Lee, and Herbert Nordrum, and directed and written by Joachim Trier. 
I was able to catch this film in our local art house theater and is one that is up for a couple of Academy Awards in the upcoming weeks. I heard good things and I can report good things. The film follows Julie, played by Reinsva, over a period of a few years as she crosses into her 30s and she is trying to figure out what she wants out of her life, which includes what she's doing with her relationships with the other two gentlemen I mentioned and the challenges that came out of that. Suffice it to say, Ryan's Vey plays the titular worst person in the world, but it's more that she's just a very complicated person who's trying to figure it all out. In any case, there's a lot to like about the film. One, all of the primary actors are really good, but particularly Danielson Lee as Ryan's Vey's primary, much older boyfriend throughout the movie. In a lot of ways, he plays the conscience of the film and delivers a number of incredible lines of dialogue that really felt like they hit the spot for many in the audience, myself included. Two, the music is amazing. Throughout the film, there is a ton of pop music that is playing of all eras, some of which are included as music that is in scenes, and some of it is just the film music. But it was a lot of fun to catch up on all of that during the film. Three, the opening scene that involves Ryan's Vey and Nordrum's character, Ivan, was truly amazing. They meet at a wedding that she crashes, both of them in committed relationships. And while they don't cheat, they have and form a pretty astounding connection that propels much of the rest of the film. And four, there's a pretty incredible sequence where Ryan's Vey's character suddenly stops time and she starts running around Oslo while everyone else is frozen. And I recently saw that that was not a CGI scene, but the director simply had everyone freeze in position while Ryan's Vey's character ran around. It was a true feat. There's much more to say about this movie, but I'd rather you check it out. So do that. Check out The Worst Person in the World now in theaters. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com, and I'll catch you next time. Until then.